0: John chapter 14, we're going to be in verses 12 through 18. Continuing in our series, this is part two of the Summer of the Spirit. Specifically, uh, the title of this sermon is called The Work of the Holy Spirit, an Overview. The Work of the Holy Spirit, an Overview, and we're going to be reading from John 14, verse 12 through 18. And in the same manner that you did before when uh, Britt taught last week, uh, we won't so much be diving into all the details of this text, but it'll rather serve as a a launching pad into the the various things that the Holy Spirit does. Last week we talked about who He is, today I want to talk about what He does and to send us out with that great hope and that confidence. So these are the words of Jesus in John chapter 14, verse 12, and stopping in verse 18. Jesus says this, I assure you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and he will do even greater works than these, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the Spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you do know him. Because he remains with you and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. (laughs) This is God's word. Let me pray today. Our Father in heaven, glory, glory, glory to your name. Your kingdom come. Let it come here in the coastlands even as it is in heaven. We ask right now that you would give us all that we need to live, to breathe, to survive, that you would rescue us from the enemy. We pray that you would lead us away from the temptations that like to thwart what you're doing in our lives, those lesser loves that we settle for, and instead we pray that you would give us a grand view of Jesus Christ as that which quenches our thirst. Forgive us our sins. And cause us to do the same for others who sin against us. For we as a church in this area gladly declare that the kingdom is yours. The glory is yours. The power is yours. And the honor is yours forever and ever. Amen. Last week, uh, you remember Britt brought up um, a phrase that he used uh, calling, uh, speaking about the economy of the trinity the economy of the Trinity, or the roles between those three. The Trinity is that place that Christians start from, right? You can't be a Christian without believing in the Trinity. It is the most foundational belief. It's essentially that we believe that there's one God who exists in three persons. There's one what and there's three who's. One God, three persons. One God and three different roles, these three different persons the father the son and the holy spirit have three uh, or excuse me have different roles but sometimes overlapping roles and they're all specific to what they are uh, uh, to what they delight in doing in this world and in history and so what we want to speak about today is what the holy spirit's role is in the universe and specifically in people in the church of Jesus Christ what is the role of the spirit we're going to kind of hit a lot of stuff today and move really quickly, so uh, maybe just to help us to to get a, a fast grip on things, you can think of the role of the Spirit, you can think of the work of the Spirit in three, uh, excuse me, four different ways. You can think of, uh, we'll speak of the Holy Spirit's role, we'll speak of the Holy Spirit's method in that role, we'll speak about the goals that the Holy Spirit wants to accomplish, and then we'll end with what his motivation is, with the hope that it will also be our motivation. So I want to talk about the role of the Spirit, the method of the Spirit, the goals of the Spirit, and his happy motives for what he does. When I say the role of the Spirit, you know, you can, you can breeze through the entire Bible and catch dozens of things that the Holy Spirit does. Many things that he does. You remember last week, Britt went through an entire list of who the Spirit is and things that the Spirit also does based on those things. You You can narrow down what the Holy Spirit is known for, what the Holy Spirit is masterful at with just two things. Everything that the Holy Spirit does, everything that He desires to do, all the little nuances can fall under two main things that the Holy Spirit simply gets a thrill out of doing in this life. And it's this. The Holy Spirit's role seems to be to manifest the presence of the living God everywhere he goes. And two, the Holy Spirit's role is to apply the work of God on everything that the Holy Spirit touches. And you can see that throughout the thread of the scriptures that the Holy Spirit is often working in tandem with the Father and with the Son, manifesting and applying their work to everything that he touches. You've heard that term or that phrase, everything he touches turns to gold. Well, everything the Holy Spirit turns, t- uh, touches turns into the presence of God. He causes and cultivates the dwelling place of the living God. That's what thrills him it seems and it's with everything it's with various things you can see it in the creation of the world in the creation of the universe the father spoke the universe into existence but colossians chapter 1:16 tells us that the son was the instrument of creating it and in genesis 1 we see that the spirit of god was hovering over that creation manifesting the presence of god We see it not just in creation, but in recreation. When fallen humanity is recreated, redeemed by the power of God, all three persons are involved in that. The Father predestines and also sends the Son to demonstrate the Father's love. Jesus comes, dies on the cross for us, is raised from the dead, and it's the Spirit who applies that work to our hearts, regenerating dead people To come alive again. And of course this will happen in the renewal of all things. Where the ultimate triumph over suffering and sin and death and destruction and brokenness. The ultimate triumph of God's love over all of that will be when the son of God returns. And heaven kisses earth. And Jesus delivers the kingdom of God like a gift wrapped present to his father. And in the midst of that, will be the Spirit of the living God alongside the church, Jesus' bride, whispering, come. They're all thrilled to work together. I want to talk specifically about what the Holy Spirit does and all of that. The Holy Spirit manifests the presence of God and applies the work of God. And he does that with people. He does that with us. He works. We could say that the specific work of the Holy Spirit with people is to work on them and to work in them, right? He's manifesting the presence of God, but he's also applying the work. So he's on and he's in. What what does it mean for the Holy Spirit to work on a person? Well, any time in the New Testament that you see a person like uh, becoming born again or regenerated, or coming to new life, new birth, or repentance. This is a supernatural work of God. This isn't somebody signing the back of a church bulletin or raising their hands, even though we can do all of those things. It's not uh, something inherent in a sinner's prayer. It is the regenerative, supernatural power of the living God in the Spirit to take off your blinders in a saving way. The Holy Spirit... Is the one who applies salvation to dead people. You are dead and he makes you alive. So, regeneration, that's the Holy Spirit uh, uh, moving on a person and bringing them to life. But the Holy Spirit doesn't just move on a person, he desires to go deeper, he desires to get his hands dirty. He desires to go as deep as humanly possible, and the wording and the phraseology that the apostles tend to use in regards to this is within and indwelling. The Holy Spirit doesn't just want to move upon a person; the Holy Spirit wants to invade. One of the most fascinating and mysterious passages of Scripture I think I've ever read is Ephesians three verse eleven in which Paul refers to what is called the eternal purpose of God. And why I love that verse is because without it, I tend to ask, question, I, I tend to ask questions like, what's, what's God's big plan in all of this? Have you ever asked that? Like, okay, what, what is God's, you know, if God had a mission statement above his desk, what would it read? What is that which thrills God? What is it which gets God uh, out of bed in the morning, so to speak? What what causes him to to, to move? What drives him? What is his motivating passion? Some of you might, uh, perhaps some of us would say, well, it's to save sinners. Really? I, I know he does that, but is that the end goal? Because if that's the end goal, what are we to make of Genesis 1 and 2 before sin is in the world and God is still thrilled? It seems that God has a deeper intent than just to fix broken people. It seems that God has a great vision involving people. Sin kind of got in there and wrecked a few things, threw a monkey wrench in, so he, uh, in the the, uh, foreknowledge and uh, predestined wisdom that he has, already instilled a plan and he has sovereignly taken care of it, but is that the end goal? No. There seems to be something that causes his heart to beat faster than just redeeming sinners. And that ep- eternal purpose that Paul speaks of begins to emerge when you begin to view the rich tapestry of the story of God. When you begin to, you know, it's, it's good sometimes to get caught up in the details and to read verses Uh, and and, uh, little parts, but when you begin to back up for a moment and see the the sum of all the parts, the story, the rich tapestry of what God is doing in history, that eternal purpose begins to emerge from the pages, and certain themes begin to unfold that just kind of uh, are interwoven throughout the Scriptures, big themes that God is all about. One of those, we would have to say, is that God desires to dwell. If I had to say from the scriptures, the, uh, if I had to identify or pinpoint something that God was more passionate about than anything else on the face of the planet, it's this, that God desires to inhabit. Inhabit what? Something. Anything. All things. Everything. Himself. Each other. So he creates so that he can inhabit. And we see this theme unfolding from the very beginning. God is in the is, he, he is passionate about dwelling in his creation. Starting in the book of Genesis, what does God do? He dwells in a garden. Well, what does he do from there? He wants to indwell more, so he creates humanity. At the end of Genesis, we have a man coming in on the scene, Abraham, who starts a family. God moves in and dwells with that family. The family grows into the nation of Israel. God then dwells in a special way with a nation, through judges, through kings, through priests. Later, they build a a divine mobile home, the tabernacle, and he dwells in the tabernacle. Then they set their roots down. The tabernacle turns into the temple. He dwells in the temple in a special way. Until we get to the New Testament and everything finds its climax in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Where John chapter 1 verse 14, I think it's 14, says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally in the original language, Jesus tabernacled among us. Meaning that God was well pleased, as the Book of Colossians says, to uh, to dwell within His Son in bodily form. And so now, Jesus, uh, so now God dwells within a person, walking around. But it doesn't stop there. Jesus dies on the cross. He redeems people for His own name. He rises again from the dead. He ascends to the right hand of the Father. And he leaves his organic spiritual body, which is the church. A bunch of people for his spirit to now dwell. So, God's eternal purpose and passion is to dwell. And right now, his dwelling place is the church of Jesus Christ. It's you. We are his heartbeat. We are what caused God to roll out of bed in the morning, to get up and to be thrilled, to share himself by dwelling with people. This is what Paul was getting at in Ephesians 1, verse uh, 22 and 23. God put everything under Jesus' feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body. Listen to this. The fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Paul would go on in Ephesians 2, verse 21 and 22 to say, the whole building. Now, understand when Paul speaks about buildings, he's not speaking about rebar and paint and flooring and wood and all of that stuff. He's speaking about people. We are the building that God dwells in. Listen to what he says. The whole building, you you and me, us together, are being put together by him, growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord. Dwelling. Listen to this you also are being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. You exist so that God can dwell. God is passionate about dwelling, so the role of the Spirit is simply to create and cultivate a dwelling to save people and to bring them into that building so that God can dwell with them and to manifest the wonderful presence of of Jesus. Now... Why does he do that? Because at this point, perhaps you're saying, okay, I get it. That's very poetic. God wants to dwell. Holy Spirit helps him. It uh, doesn't sound as deep as I would like to. Like, what does that do? <laughs> sounds like, a, sounds like a, a romantic movie or a novel or something. But w- w- what, is that, what does that end up doing in this life anyway? Well, this is what the Holy Spirit desires to work towards. We can at least, there might be a few more nuances, but we can at least pull three goals. Three things that the Holy Spirit is desiring to do when he does his work. Three things that the Holy Spirit is obsessed with. Three things that the Holy Spirit is all about. The Holy Spirit does nothing arbitrary. He does all things for these three things. We can at least say, With this first one, that everything that the Holy Spirit does is for the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Everything the Holy Spirit does is to lift up and to exalt and to exalt and to show and to boast about and to brag about and to put on display and to put on blast the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself would say in John 16, verse 13 through 14, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Last verse, he will glorify me. The Holy Spirit, his role and his goal is to glorify Jesus. Jesus. Notice that the Holy Spirit's goal is not to glorify or uh, uh, be obsessed with himself. Meaning if the Holy Spirit is so caught up in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and we are caught up with the Holy Spirit, it follows that we should be caught up with Jesus Christ. So if we have a manner of living... Or a theology, or a habit, or a behavior, or a doctrine, or an opinion that makes a lot of the Holy Spirit, which we should do, hence the summer of the Spirit. We can be obsessed with the Holy Spirit, but if that does not lead to more of Jesus in our lives, we have made a wrong connection somewhere. We've taken the wrong fork in the road. We've dr- driven off into the coast, just off into the water. We're not on the road anymore. The Holy Spirit. Makes much of Jesus Christ. And in fact, you can search the scriptures from top to bottom, from back to front. You will never see the Spirit of God make much of himself. And you know, he could, right? He, he's kind of a big deal. Holy Spirit. He was present in creation, he's renewing all things. He is the one who brings dead people to life spiritually. He's the one in Romans that we're told brings Jesus to life at the resurrection. The Holy Spirit is a big deal. And yet the Holy Spirit never, ever, ever boasts about himself. He is enthralled with the Son of God. So much so that Jesus would speak about the Spirit's obsession in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. You know what that power results in? Well, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. When the power of the living God comes upon a person, it, and it, comes to, uh, it, it expresses itself and manifests itself in a boasting in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, Paul said, No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. Meaning when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, it causes the Lordship of Jesus Christ to manifest itself. 1 John chapter 4, verse 2, John says, This is how you know the Spirit of God. How do you know the Holy Spirit? Well, every spirit who confesses that Jesus Christ has come is uh, in the flesh is from God. Meaning that when the Holy Spirit is at work with people, Jesus gets more recognition. When the Holy Spirit is... Working among a church, Jesus is being put on the throne. When when a church is rightly following the work and the person of the Holy Spirit, they are also rightly aligned with the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Even the Scriptures, the Bible tells us, the, tells us that the Holy Spirit inspired the Scriptures. They are God breathed. Paul told Timothy. I believe Paul told uh, the Galatian church. I think it was the, the church in the Galatian church that. Men did not, uh, people did not write the scriptures. Prophecy does not have its origin in the will of man. But men were moved by the Holy Spirit and led by God in the things that they wrote. So what we could say is that the Holy Spirit wrote a book. But what is the book about? I think and one of the most Incredible Bible studies that has ever existed in the history of mankind. When Jesus is kind of walking incognito at the road to Emmaus with his disciples after he rose from the dead, but they don't know it yet. He kind of just walks side by side with them, and he asks them, "Hey, what's you know, what I miss? (laughs) What are the headlines? What's going on in Jerusalem these days? You know, what's yeah." And they reply with disappointment and discouragement. Uh, we, we thought we had, you know, to this effect, we thought we had the right Messiah. You know, the one the Old Testament spoke about who would come with the sword and take care of all of our problems. And yet he died. He was killed. He was the wrong guy. We're, we're disappointed. We thought it was going to work out a certain way. You know how Jesus responds? He responds by giving them a Bible study through the entire Old Testament. And he says, and I quote, How unwise and slow you are to believe in your hearts all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, which is another way of saying the whole Old Testament, Jesus interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all of scripture. Meaning that every line... Every phrase, every jot, every tittle, every paragraph, every pericope, every book, and every passage in some way points towards the person of Jesus Christ. So we can say that the Holy Spirit wrote a book, and Jesus is his protagonist. Now, what about salvation? Well, salvation is a supernatural work of being made alive. The Holy Spirit is the one that makes you alive, but How does he do it? Listen to this. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul says, For the same God who said, Let light shine out in darkness in creation, has also shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Meaning that the way that you're even born again is by the Holy Spirit giving you a divine revelation of who Jesus is. Well, what about the indwelling presence that we've been speaking about? Well, what is that? What's the ultimate end and goal of the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence? So we can feel all warm inside? Well, no, that's a, you know, that's a, that's an appetizer, I guess. But the end goal of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is what Paul would pray in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16. I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in the inner man through his Spirit, so that the Messiah may dwell in your hearts through faith. That we are, in a very real way, unified with Jesus because of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is so obsessed with Jesus. It caused one New Testament scholar, one of my favorites, uh, Frederick Dale Bruner, to write a book back in the 80s entitled, and I quote, the Holy Spirit, shy member of the Trinity. And in the way that he uses it, he doesn't mean shy in the way that we might use it, like bashfulness. We, we know that the Holy Spirit is far from bashful. In fact, he would say in his book, the Holy Spirit is shy about every, uh, everyone except Jesus, but when it comes to Jesus, he's downright bullish. To quote him again, he would say, I do not honestly believe that a new Spirit-centeredness is what our church needs. I do believe, however, that the Spirit's sign, His desire, His work, is that we would be overcome again. Thrilled again. Excited. Impressed. And gripped again by the wonder. By the majesty. By the earthiness. By the relevance of Jesus Christ and His Word to our world. The Holy Spirit is shy by great delight. So he's not like, you know, a middle child. Bitter, hiding in a corner, not wanting to talk to anybody. The Holy Spirit delights to put Christ on a pedestal. Meaning that if that's the Holy Spirit and that's who we want more of, it would follow that we would also end up wanting more of Jesus Christ in our lives. The Holy Spirit doesn't just give us more of Jesus, but the Holy Spirit gives sinners a desire for holiness. This is the second thing the Spirit of God does. The Holy Spirit does this by uniting us to Jesus Christ and teaching us to uh, enjoy Jesus Christ. We get that in places like Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 and 21. G, uh, Paul says, uh, I, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So the life I live right now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself up for me. So even though we live in this flesh and blood, even though we live with the same temptations, the same mind, the same brain, the same heart, there is in a very real way a sense that Jesus is unified with us so much so that we are identified with him by the Spirit's work. And what this will do to you, is it will do two things. It will cause, the, it will break the power that sin had over your life before you knew Christ. Whereas you had no, you had no other thing but to do what your sick, sinful, destroyed heart desired to do. Now the, the power of sin, Romans 6, has been broken in your life for the first time. But he doesn't just stop there the Holy Spirit then causes you to enjoy Jesus, to enjoy the very person that you have been unified. So it's not that God is just taking away, he's not just breaking the power of sin in your life, he is filling that empty vacuum with a love for his holiness. He's not just leaving you debt free with a a gaping hole to try to fill, he is filling it with more of himself. Oh, there was a period in... Uh, in the 1800s, I think he was a college professor who wrote a tiny little booklet that has just kept me awake at night it 's called it 's called "The Expulsive Power of a New Affection." And in this book it 's a very short book, but his, his basic thesis is to say that one person a person cannot simply stop sinning. You cannot just get rid of an idol. Why? Because your heart needs to worship something. So if you get rid of something, if you undermine something that your heart was attached to, it will quickly attach itself to something else. You were created to be a worshiper. You cannot exist with a vacuum in your heart. As John Calvin once famously quipped, your heart is an idol factory. If you get rid of one idol, you will make an idol out of something else. And so Thomas Calmers, knowing this, says, uh, as an example, the love of the world cannot be simply expunged by a mere demonstration of the world's worthlessness. People don't get saved because you tell them how bad sin is. He goes on to say, the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. The only way your idol is uprooted and kept away is when a greater love usurps its authority in your life. This is what Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. We all, with unveiled face, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord. And because of what we see, because of our new appetite, because of our new hunger, we are being transformed Into the same image from glory to glory. And this is from the Lord who is the Holy Spirit. Meaning, the Holy Spirit doesn't just expel your desire to sin. But he replaces it with a desire for God's holiness. So if you've got the Holy Spirit, you will notice a love for Jesus and a love for holiness. But you'll also notice one more thing. Because this is high on the Holy Spirit's agenda. Is a love for mission. And mission keeps us, especially in our our individualistic, westernized society, from from being too inward focused, you know? Like we can easily just be that crowd, like, yeah, just love Jesus, you know, love holiness, get better, be a better person. But the Holy Spirit doesn't just cause you to look inward at yourself. He causes you to explode outwardly with the joy of the Lord in mission. That's why we have the entire book of Acts. You know, at, at the top of your book, at the uh, book of Acts in your Bibles, it probably says something like the Acts of the Apostles. Um, the Word of God was authored by the Holy Spirit, but the titles were not. The titles came centuries later when publishers put Bibles together. They would just label them a certain way. Um, I, think, I think Acts is better titled the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because after reading it, you will see the Holy Spirit on mission in the world in a way that the world has never seen in thousands of years. Spreading the fame of Christ among nations. Thwarting the schemes of the enemy in incredible ways. He does it in a a few ways. Uh, We can think of the world as a mission field. In Luke chapter 24, verse 44 through 48, you have this story where Jesus ascended the disciples are better now they're done wiping their eyes they're like oh jesus is alive he is the messiah yeah we thought we got it wrong okay right on let's okay jesus let's do our thing like come over to our house we'll barbecue we'll do this thing we'll take over rome awesome jesus says actually i'm out i'm gonna bounce I'm going back to my father but his last words you are witnesses of everything that i did and i'm sending you what the father promised Holy Spirit, as for you, stay in the city until you are empowered from on high. And in a continuation of that, we see one of his last words in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That there would be a time at Pentecost, marked by Pentecost, where the Spirit would work in a way that has not been possible in all of history, where a fire is breathing in the church and taking ground for the glory of God's fame, and there's nothing that Satan can do to stop it, to the ends of the earth, meaning that the world needs the gospel by Spirit-filled believers. I used to be under the impression that Hudson Taylor uh, reached the whole world back in the 50s or whatever it was. <laughs> you know, all the nations. The Bible tells us to go to all the nations. Well, I'm pretty sure I've gone to all the nations looking at my passport. And I kind of know the gospel. So, you know, I think we've got it covered. So, Lord, come. <laughs> but when, when the Bible speaks about nations, it's, it's important to understand that he's not speaking about geographic nations. He's speaking about people groups. The command is to go to all people groups who have not heard the gospel. And there are many. I'm told by Amber Smith, our uh, the international dire- uh, director of the international sending team here at this church, that the current numbers remaining, there are 7,000 people groups that are currently unreached by the gospel. Now, I don't... Do, uh, I don't want to confuse this. I don't mean unreached in the sense that, you know, California is unreached. You know, like we, we reject the gospel. We've heard it and we don't want anything to do with it. I'm talking about people who have never been exposed to the person of Jesus. Meaning if they would die tonight, they would die without him because they've never heard. 7,000 ethnic unreached people groups making up 40% of the world's population. That is, listen, $3 people. People who according to current statistics today will live and die without ever having heard in their entire people group about Jesus Christ and what he has done for them and hence the wording of Paul in Romans chapter 10 how will they hear if people are not sent I'm hoping and praying that some of you will be sent many of you have been sent and are being sent I'm praying for more I'm praying for radical sentness Maybe some of you freshmen, sophomores in college who thought you were going to go get some job in L.A. or New York will get this call on your life from God to parachute into New Guinea and translate the New Testament into their language and to see an entire village come to Christ over a 10 or 20 year period. Perhaps some of you are 50, 40 years old and you've, you've set your roots down so hard you don't even want to leave your living room. But maybe some of you are getting a call and the Holy Spirit will uproot you from your living room and from everything you knew was comfortable to show you what it looks like to see God's fame expand. Maybe some of you will go to the nations. The church is also a mission field. You know, this, to fellowship and to love each other as Christ loved the church is mission. It's hard work. Volunteering, those of you who serve and, and work so hard to serve one another uh, without any of the glory, without any recognition, greeting and pouring coffee and taking care of people's children on Sundays and uh, leading comm groups and opening up your homes to those who, 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 who need to come in, those of you who serve uh, greeting and those of you who are ushering and those of you who are just called to love other people, those of you that are called to full-time vocation, that is your mission. You need the Holy Spirit for that. And then for just about everybody in this room, everybody in this church, your vocation is a mission field. See, some of us get so caught up in that first one. Mission is going somewhere to do something crazy. So I need to invent something like some water purification system that will revolutionize all of Africa and Asia and then I will be faithfully serving the Lord. And you are destroyed inside because you have not got there, you're still stuck at that grocery store doing what you do. And you're just waiting for your break. Can I, can I just liberate you from that for a moment? You know what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 20? Each person should remain in the life situation in which He is called. Meaning that wherever you happen to be, you have been sovereignly placed there in this time by the power of the living God. You are on mission wherever you spend your life. And don't look for something that God hasn't planned for you. If you're, if you're a barista or you're a stay-at-home mom or a stay-at-home dad and you had bigger dreams for your life and it seems so hard and you don't see the reward immediately in front of you, it's just too mundane and it's just too ordinary you feel. I want you to get wrapped up not in the extraordinary work that you wish you were doing, but in the extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit on ordinary works in our hands and in our feet and in our speech. That God is calling you, perhaps, to be normal so that he can be supernatural there where you exist. We often think of verses that are crazy. Go, go here, go there, do this, do that. Nobody ever quotes 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 10. You don't see any books on the, on the uh, bestseller list in Christianity that say what Paul said. We encourage, encourage you, brothers, to do so even more. What? To seek to lead quiet life, mind your own business, and work with your hands. As we commanded you, so that you may walk properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. I, I don't read any books that tell me that. They don't sell very well. But Paul says, hey, you want to be faithful to God? Stay where you are. Stay where he's called you. Be faithful to it. Be quiet. Don't bug people. Mind your own business. Work with your hands well. And God will show himself mighty where you live. You will live an ordinary life perhaps, but God will show himself extraordinarily on your behalf and on behalf of his glory and you will be able to sit down on your knees having done nothing and say, God chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And in so doing, know that the Holy Spirit is working. That you don't have to persuade your coworkers and relatives and friends and people in your life, you don't have to rely on fancy rhetoric, you don't have to preach like that guy, you don't have to have all of this information, you don't have to do all of these things perfectly, that this actually is a work of the Holy Spirit who right now is convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, John 16 tells us, meaning that the Holy Spirit is at work in your friends right now. The Holy Spirit is at work in your family right now, in your coworkers. Right now. So mission is just partnering with what the Holy Spirit is already doing right now. Who will answer the call? I want to end by giving you what the Holy Spirit's motivation is in all of these things. The desire behind God's mission. Looking in at the New Testament and the Old Testament seems to be very simple and very thrilling. It would seem that everything that the Holy Spirit and that God desires to do comes from a desire to want to share himself. God created a universe so that he could dwell in it. God created people so that he could share his joy with them. When they rejected him, he won them back. He brought them into a family and he poured himself out on them. And there will be a point where he brings everything all together in subjection to his son. Michael Reeves, in a book called uh, Delighting in the Trinity, put it this way. The Father so enjoyed loving the Son that He wanted His love to be in others. The Son went because He so loved His Father and wanted that love to be shared and enjoyed. The Spirit catches us up to share their pleasure and it is that delight in them that fuels us to want to make them known. You see what's going on? The Holy Spirit in giving us a greater view of Jesus, a hunger for holiness, a desire to live for something greater than ourselves is, in effect, giving us a taste of heaven in this life. He is pulling us into what he has experienced from all of eternity. He is causing us to share in what the uh, medieval theologians called the divine dance, that love relationship between Father and Son and Holy Spirit. He created people to draw them into that experience to get caught up in the endless participation of God's love that he has known for all of eternity. Oh, God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, Paul says in Romans. Holy Spirit is a gift to God's people. And the Holy Spirit's work is to give you more of God. Now, I hope if if we you know if we forget everything that we just went over right now we will remember this the holy spirit is magnificent majestic and monumental that what the holy spirit does is so important and so crucial for anything going right that we would be amiss remiss to do anything apart from him that we truly cannot do anything worthwhile in the narrative, in the story of God apart from it. Sure, we we could spin our wheels. You know, we could play church if we want. We don't need the Holy Spirit for that. We could be religious. We could show up and blow up. We can, you know, do our lives. We can chase money and the dreams of this life, and we can be comfortable. We don't need the Spirit of God for any of those things. But what we see in the New Testament is impossible apart from the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. Anything, we can do nothing holy by the standard of God except by the Spirit of God. We can do nothing to fit our new identities except by the Spirit of God. We can do nothing to really glorify Christ except by His Spirit. We can do nothing to further or accelerate His kingdom except by His Spirit. We can't even satisfy our own thirsty souls except by the Holy Spirit. And yet with the Holy Spirit, we can do all of those things. So the question I want to leave you with one which I ask myself frequently, is in light of all of this, are you living in such a way right now that you have to be dependent on the Holy Spirit in order to do so? Does the life that you live right now require God to show himself mighty on your behalf, or are you fine without him? Does the work of the Holy Spirit cause you to live differently than you would if he were not present? Or to couch it in different terms. If the Holy Spirit were to depart from you right the second, would anybody be able to notice? Would you be able to notice? I want to pray right now that it would be extremely noticeable. That the church of Jesus Christ in the coastlands of California, on this coast, would live lives that are in utter desperate dependence on the third person of the Trinity. And if that's your prayer too, can we just bow before the Lord of glory this morning, this afternoon, and throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus and ask him in one voice, Heavenly Heavenly Father, pour your spirit out on us right now. Holy Spirit is a gift. God, we ask right now for the gift of the Holy Spirit. I ask for my brothers and sisters in Christ, for myself as well, knowing where we live, that it can be so easy to get caught up in what we're doing. We are truly blessed to live here, but with that blessing comes tremendous comfort. And Lord, I've noticed, at least in my own life and in my own heart, that the more comfortable I am with my surroundings and with my life, the less I depend on you. And Lord, if there's anyone else in this church that believes the same thing, I pray that you would uproot us from our comfort today to give us something greater to live for. And for those of us that need the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives in a fresh way. I pray that you would pour him out on us today as we worship. Please, God, for the glory of your name, do not let anyone in this building that calls out on you leave without a fresh touch of the Holy Spirit. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.